0: show. The dollar continued its losing streak today. The dollar index was down for the eighth time in nine days. I think the decline, the nine-day decline, is about 2.5%. The dollar index actually traded below 97 today for the first time since Donald Trump was elected president. So we have wiped out 100% of the ill-gotten dollar gains that were racked up in the wake of that victory. And if you remember, when the dollar was rallying as a result of the Trump victory, I said it was a sucker's rally, that it was a head fake rally. And sure enough, that's exactly what it was. But the dollar's decline has only just begun. You know, I think the dollar would have begun its decline a while ago had Hillary Clinton been the winner. But because of Trump unexpectedly winning, And the excitement that that generated surrounding the prospects of faster economic growth and Trumpflation, as if inflation were actually good for the dollar, but to the extent that it made the Fed raise interest rates even faster or moving them up even higher, remember all that talk? That's what created the rally. And it was a great selling opportunity for people who understood what really was going on. But all we've done thus far is get rid of gains that never should have been racked up. The dollar hasn't even really begun its decline, but I think that decline is going to begin in earnest. In fact, my next target for the dollar index is gonna be around 92, which is still about 5% below current levels. But if we get below 92, that will mean the dollar will be at its lowest level since January of 2015, so about a two-and-a-half-year low, uh, assuming you know, we get there in the next couple of months, You know, maybe even a little longer than that, depending on how long it takes to trade down or below 92. But what really gets interesting is what happens once the dollar index gets below 92, because you go look at a chart there's nothing but air beneath maybe 92 and 80 because the dollar index rose in 2014 from 80 through 90. I mean, the dollar had a huge rally in 2014, anticipating all of the tightening, all of the tapering and all of the rate hikes. That was probably the best year for the dollar. And, it, and that momentum continued into 2015. I mean, the dollar didn't lose its momentum until the Fed started hiking rates. That was the end of the dollar trade, right? The dollar had been bid up for a couple of years, anticipating the first rate hike. And by the time the markets got the first rate hike, it was buy the rumor, sell the fact. And we've been trending sideways ever since, with the exception of a slight move to new highs on the back of the Trump victory. But I think the dollar has been putting in a top ever since the Fed hiked rates. And what I've been saying all along is this is not just going to be a buy the rumor, sell the fact. This is going to be a situation where the fact does not live up to the rumor. We're not going to get nearly as many rate hikes as the market priced in. And I don't think the Fed is ever going to get around to shrinking its balance sheet, something that may already be priced in. The dollar is falling despite the fact that it's still almost a lock, almost 100% odds 90-something percent odds of a June rate hike. So everybody expects a June rate hike. In fact, they expect another one, I think, maybe in December. Yet despite these rate hikes uh, that the market thinks are coming, the dollar is falling anyway. What does that tell you about the effect of rate hikes, these small little incremental hikes on the dollar? Meanwhile, the currency markets haven't even begun to factor in the fact that these rate hikes are coming to an end, even if we get a June hike we may not get a december hike we may get a december cut or we may get the fed to start talking about the potential for an ease or maybe the end of tightening wait till the fed has to acknowledge a lot of the economic weakness that it's staring in the face i mean so far it doesn't want to admit it look at the numbers coming out about the auto sector i mean look at the inventory look at the plunging prices for used cars. I mean, what does this tell you? And of course, if we have a glut of unsold cars on the market, if the automobile companies aren't going to be able to sell new cars, they're not going to be producing them. And if they're not going to be producing them, they don't need all these workers. And if they don't need all the workers making the cars, well, what about the supply chain? And again, these are some of the higher paid jobs, people that work in automobile manufacturing, automobile supply, But this is just one indication. Again, look at these retailers going like dominoes, one after another with bad earnings. You know, we're going to get the final look on Q1 GDP on Friday. We'll see if they don't revise that down even more to make that an even weaker quarter than the one that we had. Meanwhile, everybody is hanging their hat on a strong Q2. Where is the indication of that? I mean, a lot of the enthusiasm behind the Trump rally is wearing off. With all the talk that you know maybe Trump may not be able to finish out his term, and even if he does finish out his term, he's spent a lot of political capital. I think he's uh, you know winning some points uh, in the Middle East. I think that the talk that he's giving that he gave in Saudi Arabia yesterday, he's in Israel today I think this may help the president's approval rating. But I don't know that it's going to do enough to reflate the confidence bubble. That we're going to get these massive tax cuts, we're going to get massive deregulation, and then we're going to have all this economic growth. I think even people who expect some type of tax cut or some type of reform, they're pushing out the date that they think that's going to happen into, uh, into next year. And so this is not an immediate event. That's going to help corporate earnings. That's going to bring down the corporate tax rate. So I think that enthusiasm is going to wear off. So I don't know where this big GDP bump is going to come from in Q1 or Q2. Meanwhile, look at the comments today from Angela Merkel about the Euro. She specifically came out and said she thinks the Euro is too low. So now the Germans have a strong Euro policy. Of course, they don't control the ECB, but they have a lot of influence. And of course, Merkel is blaming the weak euro or the euro being too weak on the ECB. So now you've got uh, Angela Merkel uh, talking about a strong euro while you have Donald Trump talking about a weak dollar. He's saying the dollar is too high. Well, he's right. Merkel's saying the euro's too low. She's right also. So I think the euro goes up and so does every, every other currency. And the dollar continues to go down. That's why these foreign stock markets continue to outperform U.S. stock markets because they've got the wind at their backs. And that wind is about to pick up as the dollars decline, gather steam. I think when it breaks through 92, I think we're making a line down to 80. I think that's going to be a quick move. And that's another 17.5% drop from here. And if I'm right and that move happens pretty quickly, maybe we get it by... Q1 or Q2 of next year, we get down to those levels, that is going to mean huge, huge outperformance for foreign stocks. I think it's going to mean that you're going to see a big move in precious metals. Look, gold and silver are each up about 7.5% or so year-to-date. Silver was up better than 2% today, about $0.35 cent move back above 17 Gold is now back above 1260 But I still think that these moves are small, looking at what's going on with gold stocks, uh, the traders still don't believe it, but if we get the kind of breakdown in the dollar that I believe then you're going to see a move up in gold and silver much bigger than we've seen a move up in commodities, move up in the price of oil, and this is going to be a big benefit for the the global markets and you know a lot of people jump to the false conclusion that uh foreign markets don't want to see a weak dollar because you know they panic when their currencies are rising against the dollar, and everybody thinks well foreigners want to. A strong dollar because they want to keep exporting to us. They want to sell us stuff, and so they want to make sure uh, that Americans can afford to buy. But that's not actually true. A weak dollar helps the rest of the world. What countries don't want is when their currency is the only one that's rising against the dollar because they don't want to give up some kind of perceived competitive advantage to another country. But assuming the dollar is sinking against every currency— then that is the best thing that can happen to the rest of the world. You see, when the dollar goes down, Americans don't substitute domestically produced goods for foreign goods because we don't have domestically produced alternatives. We just have to pay whatever price uh, foreigners are, are selling their products for. If you go back to the biggest trade deficits America ever had, the biggest ones were in 2008, before the financial crisis, when the dollar index was at 70. So when the dollar was at an all-time record low, that's when our trade deficits were at an all-time record high. So a weak dollar doesn't mean that Americans buy less, it just means we pay more for the things that we do buy. And to the extent that we buy a little bit less, we end up spending more to get less, which means foreigners sell us less to get more so they win. See, that is the point of exporting. You always want to export as little as you can and earn as much as you can i mean think about a job right if you have a job you work you give your employer labor your hours of work and he gives you money well what do you want to do as a worker you want to give your employer as few of your hours as possible you want to work as little as possible but get paid as much as possible right so the less you have to work and the more you make for your work the better off you are right because then you have more leisure Well, the world works less hard when the dollar is weak, because they don't have to sell us as much of their stuff to get our dollars. So when the dollar goes down, it's good for all the exporters who sell to America. But also think about this. Think about all the countries that borrow in dollars. A lot of the emerging market economies that can't borrow in their own currency because nobody wants to lend in their own currency because they're worried about it so they they borrow in dollars well when the dollar goes down it's like a massive tax cut because all of a sudden the, the value of your debt is gone your interest payments the debt service goes down it's like your adjustable rate mortgage just took a huge hit down and now you don't have to spend as much and commodity prices are in dollars so when the dollar goes down the whole world gets to buy commodities for less so everybody but America America benefits from a strong dollar Our financial markets benefit from a strong dollar, but when the dollar is weak, it's the rest of the world that benefits. Now, sometimes you don't see that in the US stock market because the US stock market could keep going up when the dollar is weak. The way the dollar kept going up, I mean, the way the US stock market went up from 2002, let's say, to 2008, we had a weak dollar and the US stock market went up, but it didn't go up as much as the dollar went down, or it didn't go up nearly as much as foreign markets did as a result of the weak dollars. So Americans can get fooled, right? They can get lulled into a false sense of complacency. They think they're getting richer as they're actually getting poor. So if I'm right, and this is the beginning of a long overdue dollar drop, we have got a long way to go. And by the way, when we get down to 80, which would be back to the lows of, you know, January 2014, we're not going to stop there. Because I think by then, will be in recession. The Fed will have already changed gears and the dollar is going to kick into a whole new level of decline. We're going to take out that 70 level, which was the record low that we established in summer of 2008 before we were saved by the financial crisis. Paradoxically, right? the financial crisis caused people to run towards the blast rather than away from it. But since everybody had been short the dollar for eight years, seven years, they, they reverse those traits. This is going to be the opposite. I think the dollar is going to fall through the floor. And if you remember, when I first wrote my book Crash Proof, I had a target for the dollar index of between 60 and 40. That was kind of where I thought it was going. At the time I wrote the, the book, uh, we were still 85, 90-ish or so on the dollar index. We had never gotten down to 70 yet because I wrote the book, you know, in 2015. It came out In uh, March of uh, 2017, but as I was writing the book, the dollar index was in the mid to upper 80s, I believe, or lower 90s, wherever I started writing. It took a while to finish the book, but the dollar index had never been down to 70. It ultimately got to 70 after the book came out. But back then, my downside target was, you know, a range of 60 to 40, like at the extreme low end, 40 on the dollar index and then maybe 60. But now, given how much bigger the bubble has gotten, how much deeper the hole we have dug ourselves. Because remember, when I wrote that book, Crash Proof, and I thought that the bursting of the housing bubble, which would bring about the worst recession since the Great Depression, which would cause the Fed's most aggressive monetary policy ever— right? Quantitative easing. I didn't know what they were going to call it. I just described what they were going to do. I thought that monetary policy would produce a dollar crash. Little did I know that there would be an eight-year gap or more between the time the Fed instituted that policy and when the dollar would ultimately succumb and collapse. In fact, because the dollar initially rose, you've got so many people now that don't even think that the Fed did any damage. They've done a tremendous amount of damage. It's just not evident yet because the problems haven't risen to the surface, just like the Fed did a lot of damage when it created the housing bubble. I warned about that damage for years, but nobody understood the damage. It was like an iceberg, and even the tip wasn't above the surface. And even when the tip came out, when we got the the first problems in subprime, everybody was dismissing it because all they could see is that tip, and they had no idea how much ice was beneath the surface. Well, you know, we've got a Mount Everest of ice uh, beneath the surface of all this quantitative easing liquidity, Uh, that the Fed has flooded the market. So I think that we could go even lower this time around when the Fed goes back to zero or negative and they have to do QE4, which we know they're going to do. Right. And even if Donald Trump is successful in getting his agenda through Congress, what is his agenda? Right. It's deficit spending. It's priming the pump, Keynesian style. Right. He's, you know, borrowing a page from uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt and, you know, that's not the type of playbook I, I want him to follow, but it looks like that's what he wants to do. Uh, and then, if you start to finance the government through inflation, money printing rather than taxation, that is the worst way to pay for big government, and it's going to take a huge toll on the dollar. And so, this is just beginning. And you know, I want to go back to the podcast I did from Las Vegas because I mentioned the presentation that Jeff Gundlach did that I watched, and you know, as a result of this uh Jeff Gundlach who just recently signed up on Twitter. In fact, he announced his new tr- Twitter page at the um at the SALT conference and he's already got about twenty two, twenty three thousand 23,000 followers in about a week or two, which is a lot of followers. I mean, I've got not I got like 95,000, but it's taken me what 7 8 years. So uh, he's uh you know, got a lot of followers in a very short period of time. In fact, you might as well I just followed him myself. So uh you might want to follow him as well because after I mentioned him he did send out a couple of tweets about me. Now, one of them, he said, was that I was overstating his dollar negativity. And I went back and listened to it, and I did say that he was very bearish. So I don't know, maybe he's just bearish and not very bearish. I mean, he never put a target. He simply said that he thought the dollar was going to go down, and he thought that, that, and that was another reason that he was bullish on emerging markets, because he believed the dollar was going to decline. But I did say on my podcast that I did not think Gundlach was bearish enough. So I think the dollar is going to fall a lot more than he believes. So I didn't mean to say that, you know, he's as apocalyptic as I am. In fact, I, I think I went out of my way to say that wasn't the case. But he also seemed to take some offense that I that I kind of labeled him a, a mainstream guy or an establishment guy. And, you know, he does have some anti-consensus views. My main point was the establishment or the takes him seriously. I mean, they actually listen to what he has to say and they, they, they respect it as opposed to me, where they just dismiss me. I mean, at least publicly. Maybe privately, there are some of these guys that, that follow me and like what I say, but publicly, you know, I'm a perma-bear, I'm a stop clock, I mean, I'm always wrong. And in fact, when Gundelock mentioned me on his Twitter page, all, he got all kinds of people like commenting on it again. Peter Schiff as a demoron, he's always wrong, he's completely, I don't know what he's talking about. And then a the nice thing was, at least Jeff Gundelock came back and he defended me. He said, you know, I may have been wrong in quotes for the last couple of years, but go back and look at what I was saying about the housing market. But I like the fact that he knew enough about my being wrong to put the word wrong in quotes. Because again, I don't believe I've been wrong over the last several years. I believe that I'm going to be vindicated and proven right. But you know, if you look at all the things that I've supposedly been wrong about, right? The US economy has not been as weak as I was forecasting, and the Fed has made more rate hikes than I believed they were going to deliver. But look at the opposite side. The U.S. economy has been much weaker than everybody else thought. The Fed has raised rates much less than everybody else thought. So everybody else in the mainstream was much more optimistic on the economy and rate hikes than reality, yet somehow they're still right. And because I was too pessimistic, I'm the one that's wrong, I mean, I would say that I am closer to being right based on how pessimistic I was about the U.S. economy and the Fed's inability to raise rates relative to how optimistic everybody else was and how strong the economy was going to be and how many times the Fed was going to raise rates. And if you remember, the only reason that I didn't think the Fed was going to raise rates is because I thought they were going to be smart enough to use the weak economic data as an excuse not to raise rates. Apparently, I overestimated their intelligence because they ignored all the weak economic data and kept raising rates anyway. So, you know, this is exactly what they did uh, going into the 2008 financial crisis. So, I still think that history is going to prove that I wasn't wrong, that I was early. And I think a guy like Jeff Gundlach, you know, by putting my the word wrong in quotes, I think he has the same thoughts himself. I don't I think he believes that I'm going to be vindicated and my analysis is correct even if I'm early it's better to be early than late, right? Because if you're late, you're too late. You can never be exactly on time. And also the fact that Jeff Gundelop was commenting on my podcast, I mean, maybe he listens to it. I mean, I'm not sure if he listens to my podcast or if somebody else listened to it and, and sent him a, a note. But, you know, if he listens to it, I'm flattered. I mean, he is a, he is a top guy. He's a smart guy. And if he's listening to my podcast's, then I've got even more respect for them because I think that the people who are on Wall Street who really are smart, they want to listen to what I have to say because I think even deep down, there are a lot of people who don't want to admit it, but I think they know that I'm right. They're just afraid to acknowledge in public that I'm right because, again, they don't want the backlash. But while I'm on the subject of, uh, well, not actually not Twitter, this is YouTube, I, I, I have to I have to make a comment on this. Somebody put up a... YouTube video that tried to link gold money to George Soros in a way that created some kind of false impression that George Soros is trying to take over this Texas bullion depository because, you know, I have sold out and other people like Jim Turk and Eric Sprott and Kyle Bass, we've somehow all sold out to George Soros, and now he's trying to do something underhanded. All this is a bunch of nonsense. I mean, the only link that there is between George Soros and gold money is that one of the early investors in gold money, even before I got involved, was Soros Investment Company. And it's run by George Soros' son. This is, you know, Soros Jr. So Soros Jr., decided to make an investment in gold money because he thought it was a compelling story and he wanted to have exposure in his portfolio so he is a passive investor he owns stock in a publicly traded company he's not in the management team he doesn't make decisions about the day-to-day operations he's an investor like anybody else he owns stock in a publicly traded company yet somehow this this youtube video is out there to try to you know tap into the fact that a lot of people don't like George Soros or think George Soros is evil because he's a Democrat and he's given money to Democrats. And, of course, a lot of people buying gold are Republicans, and so they're very suspicious of Democrats. So they're using his name, George Soros, and his ties to gold Money, to somehow impugn the integrity of gold Money and everybody involved, like myself, even though he's got absolutely nothing to do with the company. And I've already received some hate mail from it. I mean, not a lot. You can look at my YouTube channel. You'll see some of these comments. What's amazing to me is how gullible people are, particularly even people that listen to my YouTube channel, who you would think would be smarter than the average guy, yet they're completely taken in by this fake news. I mean, don't believe everything that you read on the Internet or that you hear on YouTube because sometimes people have an agenda and I think the agenda behind this YouTube video is to try to smear gold money and me because I think It may be a gold money competitor that is ultimately behind the video to try to influence the decisions that are going to be made in Texas with respect to which company they want to give this contract out to, because one of the companies that is vying for the contract is gold money. And of course, there are other companies that want to do the business. And so they're looking to smear their competitors by disseminating false information that they know will uh, infuriate some people by trying to, you know, paint gold money with this George Soros brush, and therefore, if George Soros is involved, then it must be bad and some kind of conspiracy, and somehow I'm involved in it, and then you get all the anti-Semitism involved, and I see that, you know, because my name is Schiff and because, you know, there was a, you know, the Jews are big bankers and Jacob Schiff, you know, and of course, my grandfather was a Jacob Schiff, not the same Jacob Schiff. My grandfather was Jacob Schiff, the carpenter, not Jacob Schiff, the banker. Not that I wouldn't be happy to have been a descendant of Jacob Schiff, the banker. I'd have a lot more money if I was fortunate enough to be in that Schiff family. But, you know, my, my, my grandfather was an immigrant carpenter. But still, people, there are still people to this day that just assume that I'm the banking Schiff just because my last name is Schiff. So there's a lot of that going on, the anti-Semitism. So I just want to mention that out there. But, you know, don't go looking for the video. We don't want to give it any more, uh, any more publicity. But I just wanted to mention it. And I want to finish up this podcast. I got to talk about Bitcoin. Obviously, Bitcoin has gone parabolic uh, since the last the time I talked. I mean, I saw it above 2200 earlier this morning. I mean, it's at 2150 or so now. Who knows where it's going to be by the time you're actually listening to this podcast? You know, the last time I spoke about Bitcoin, it had just fallen from, I think, 1800 to 1600. And about a 10% drop. And what did I say? I said it's probably an opportunity to buy the dip, even though I think it's a bubble. I mean, I recognized that the obvious momentum at that point was higher and that every time Bitcoin had gone down, you know, it's been an opportunity to buy the dip because every time it's gone down, it's made a new high. And now it's doing that in an even compressed time period. So I don't know if this latest explosive move is part of a blow off top. And this is the end of the whole mania. Or maybe this is just another leg up. Who the hell knows, right? I certainly don't know. But what I will say is that nothing about this rise in the price of Bitcoin in any way discredits anything that I've said about Bitcoin, uh, whether or not it's viable as money. See, the price can go up. I mean, as long as people want to buy it and people don't want to sell it, who own it, there's there's no limit to how high the price can go, right? I mean, anybody can bid the price up. But ultimately, if it doesn't work as money, the price is going to come crashing down eventually. Look, just like going back to the dot-com bubble, there were a lot of stocks that I knew from inception could never work as viable business models. I knew that those businesses would never be able to generate a profit, let alone generate a profit high enough to justify their multiple. Yet the fact that these companies didn't actually work didn't stop the prices from going up all that it took was a story the fact that people believed that one day they would be profitable was all they needed to bid up the prices and so you had these huge bubbles that got bigger and bigger and bigger and eventually they collapsed as i said bitcoin is not going to work as money so the basis premise that people are going to use digital currencies instead of the dollar or the euro or the yen or whatever it's not going to happen or instead of gold and by the way it's not just bitcoin that's going up It's every digital currency that's going up. They're all rising, right? Maybe there are some that are not. I mean, there's so many of them. I mean, I couldn't say that every single one because there's hundreds and hundreds. And, you know, if Bitcoin keeps rising, there'll be thousands and thousands. And I know a lot of the the Bitcoin uh, fanatics will say that, well, you know, Bitcoin's got the first mover advantage. It doesn't matter that it moves first because there's no difference between Bitcoin and any other coin. In fact, some of the newer ones may even be better. They may even be improving on some of the flaws that Bitcoin had. I don't know, but assuming they're no better, as long as they're identical, then there's an unlimited supply of these currencies that can come on the market. Forget about the fact that there's some finite number of Bitcoins. There's an infinite number of competing currencies that have just as much intrinsic value, which is zero. But you know, right now, the price is going up. Is it gonna keep going up? Probably, I mean, is 2,200 the high? Probably not. I don't know where the high is going to be, but I can tell you this, it's going to keep going up until it stops. And they're not going to ring a bell at the high. And at some point, Bitcoin price is going to fall, and it's not going to make a new high. It's going to keep on falling. So what do you do? I don't know. It's gambling. It is not going to work as money. And of course, it's never going to get to the crazy heights that so many people believe it's going to get to. I mean, long before then. Uh, This bubble will run out of air and the price will stop going down. Now, people could say, well, Peter, when are you going to admit that you're wrong? Right. Because, hey, you know, you've been talking about this Bitcoin bubble. And look, the price of Bitcoin keeps going higher and higher. The fact that it goes higher and higher doesn't disprove the fact that I believe it's a bubble. Right. It's just the bubble is bigger. I'm not short Bitcoin. I'm, you know, so I'm not losing any money on paper. I mean, sure, I've lost the opportunity to have made money on paper and to have sold some of my Bitcoin at a profit, but I'm not sure. I'm not having to, you know, feed a margin account because I'm I'm betting against this trend, even though I do think it's going to come to an end. But if somebody wants to say, well, when will I have to admit that I'm wrong about it, right? It's because it's not going to be a function of price. It's going to be a function of utilization. Can Bitcoin actually circulate as money in the global economy. And what does that mean? That means people are using it as money. Not, you know, what happened right now in Japan. And what are the reasons that you're getting this big spike in Bitcoin is because some Japanese merchants now are starting to accept it. Some laws have been passed there that are favorable to recognizing Bitcoin. And so this is generating some more hype. But the merchants in Japan, they are not pricing their products in Bitcoin. They're pricing their products in yen. All they're doing is making it easier for people who own Bitcoins to sell them to get the yen to buy their products. Obviously, with the market cap of Bitcoin as high as it is, merchants want a piece of that. They want to make it easier for people who are sitting on Bitcoin fortunes, right, to spend their fortunes at their establishment, right? So they do want to make that process easier. What I'm talking about, Bitcoin being used as money, is when Merchants are pricing their products in Bitcoin and you're paying in Bitcoin when people are working for Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a wage. You're going to work and you're going to get paid, you know, one Bitcoin a week. That's your salary. You agree to it. The employer is paying it. The workers accepting it. Your landlord says, I'm going to rent you an apartment. Your rent is one Bitcoin a month and you sign a year lease and you pay your landlord in in Bitcoin, then your landlord can turn around and pay the electric bills or the pay to repairment. It. When it's actually circulating and being held as money, then I would have to say, "You know what? I guess I was wrong, right It does work. But I don't think that day is ever going to come. I think it's being used right now as a speculative asset. People are hoarding them because they're going up. And they're buying all sorts of digital currencies because they're going up. But at some point, they're going to stop going up. And when they stop going up, they're just going to come and, you know, collapsing down. That's just going to be it. Unless the whole world is going to adopt them as a monetary system, but they won't. It's not going to happen. If we're going to have an alternative monetary system, it's not going to be Digital currency is backed by nothing. We're going to go back to real money. We're going to abandon fiat currency, and we're not going to go out back to digital fiat. What we're going to go back to real money, we're going to go to what has always worked for hundreds of years, thousands of years, and that is gold. But what we can do with gold is we can bring the gold standard into the modern age, whether it's through the blockchain, having digital currency backed by gold, Or doing what gold money is doing, allowing you to turn your gold into spendable money via the internet, via an app on your phone, where you can instantaneously and for free transfer your ownership to real gold uh, to anyone you want. Just like in the old days, under the gold standard, when Fort Knox had everybody's gold, and the Bank of Italy wanted to transfer money uh, to the Bank of Spain, you know, all that happened is they would take the gold, the, Federal, the Fort Knox, whatever. They would move the gold from the one corner of the room to another corner of the room, but it never had, it never left the premises. So basically, with gold money, the same thing can happen with individuals, where you have a custodian that can shift around ownership of the same gold. But now we take out the middleman, and individuals can directly uh, conduct commerce in real money. In small increments so that's where I think we're going I think in the scheme of things this bubble is just a bunch of noise now are there going to be people that make a lot of money yes there are people that have already made a lot of money I don't know how much money has been cashed out by the early adopters but what I can tell you this is there's a lot of paper fortunes that are still on paper that are going to be lost when the bubble pops and of course there are a lot of people you know I got an email today from my property manager in Puerto Rico, and she's a realtor that I work with, and she helps me manage. I have a condo here that I rent out sometimes when I'm not using it. And she sent me a text, never asked me for investment advice. And she said, um, hey, I want to invest some money. Um, do you have any suggestions? I hear Bitcoin is, is, is a big mover or something like that in her text. She, so she's texting me, never invested in her life, never bought any stocks, wants to make an investment. And the first thing she thought about is Bitcoin. I don't think she knows anything about it. She doesn't know what it is. She just wants to buy it because she heard it was going up. So this is the kind of mentality. Now, does that mean that this is the top? No, it could go a lot higher. I've said that before. I have no idea. I'm not smart enough to know how big a bubble is going to get before it pops. But I am smart enough to recognize a bubble when I see one. And if it walks like a bubble, quacks like a bubble, it's a bubble. And believe me, this Bitcoin bubble is one big, fat, ugly bubble.